What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Chad Lott. And I, I think that when you can pull two things that don't seem similar together, they, they help illuminate uh, points that you might not normally get. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Chad, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ben, for having me. So um, I think we're going to talk about some fun things today. Um, Let's talk about, uh, to begin with, being a senior copywriter and editor for Whole Foods, what does that actually mean? Sure. Uh, physically, it means I sit in an office in Emeryville, California, uh, on a regional team, and I work within a creative team, an in-house creative team, consisting of a couple designers, an art director, a project manager, uh, a couple freelance junior copywriters that we work with, and a couple junior designers. So we fulfill the needs of our clients uh, like any other agency would, but we're in-house to our clients, our specific product teams at Whole Foods Market. So the meat, meat, the meat department, the seafood department, the grocery team, the produce team. So those are all different uh, operational segments within the company and within our region. So we might have anything to work on from, hey, we have some flyers going out that are just sales, like real easy, like red and yellow sale flyer type stuff that needs some language all the way up to we're opening up new tap rooms and we need an identity uh, that is trademarkable and works for a specific location or that can also be scaled up to larger larger operations like multi-store operations. Uh, So pretty much anything that you would imagine that a a senior copywriter would do at an agency is stuff I work on. Yeah, so... I think, you know, I think about all the stupid conversations you and I have about a million different subjects. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I'm interested to think, I'm interested to ask, because uh, I don't think I've asked you this before, but, you know, you're such a, a consumer of diverse information. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that that has to add to your creativity. But um, what do you think added, like, what do you think it is about getting a degree in rhetoric at Berkeley that prepared you for your job? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the study of rhetoric was really helpful for my career uh, because at Berkeley, the way the rhetoric degree works is it's really more of like uh, 
a, a degree where you look at different subjects through the lens of rhetoric. So basically, like you're taking a subject and taking it apart and looking for its arguments, and also uh, some of the the information as it would be perceived by an outsider. So we would do classes like uh, the art, the rhetoric and ancient books, or rhetoric and films of the fantastic. And what rhetoric basically is is this technology of persuasion. Um, and it goes back to Aristotle. You know, it, it's it's a very old uh, idea. Like basically, like since people have been people, they've been trying to convince another person of something. And like anything else, they're they're kind of best practices. And the the formal study of rhetoric is basically the the formal study of the best practices of convincing people of things. Um, in olden days, it was considered kind of like the dirty cousin of philosophy because philosophy was at getting to the truth, and rhetoric was about uh, creating an appearance of the truth. So, you know, the, the appearance of the, you know, uh, creating appearances is all what, you know, advertising is all about. So, uh, but really, as far as my career with Whole Foods goes, there was a course that I took called uh, Green Rhetoric, which was all about uh, sustainability, uh, the way people present information, whether, and we really studied like all these like small farm things. Uh, and at the time, it was kind of when Omnivore's Dilemma came out. So there were all these arguments about how people should eat and how they should treat the world uh, through dietary concerns. And so that class left a really big impression on me. And I was also already working at farmer's markets at the time. So I was able to plug in what I was doing in my daily life into the thing that I was learning. And after I graduated, uh, that gave me a really strong Made, made me very competitive for working at a job at Whole Foods Market, where my job is basically to use words to convince people to eat a certain way. Yeah. And I'm thinking about, you know, there's all these books about Seth Godin's book, Tribes, or, mm -hmm. you know, there's so much about gathering the people, like-minded people as a, as a way to run a company, you know, sure. as a core philosophy. So I'm interested in, you know, Whole Foods feels like it kind of has a cult following, Right. Mm -hmm. So yep. I'm interested in thinking somebody else who they, they've got a they've got a group of like minded people. Um, what is he, what kind of implications does that give you when you're thinking about what to write as far as um, trying to deepen the tribe, like uh, make sure that you're speaking their language or like mm -hmm. how, how does that show up in your day to day work as far as. I mean, a lot of people like Whole Foods, and then there's some people that, like, love Whole Foods, right? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, one, one of the things about Whole Foods to really always keep in mind is it's basically a grocery store, right? And <laughs> No, and, I think it's a cult. I'm pretty sure. Well, it, it is a cult, but as far as, like, the thing that you go into, you're going into a grocery store. And what more than anything else, they're making an argument for a certain type of aesthetic when you're eating. You know, so putting aside whether or not, you know, global warming is real or raising animals is problematic for the environment, like whether or not that is true or not, you know, what Whole Foods is communicating is that there is a better way to eat. And that that's kind of reflected in our copy and, and product selection. And I think people, you know, kind of like your post baby boomer, uh, what's that book that everybody always cites in Silicon Valley, the, uh, the whole earth catalog. Hmm. Not sure. So, yeah. Yeah. So well, anyway, like out of, out of the baby boomers, out of the 60s, there were like really like these different sort of, uh, I, I think, broad movements that kind of came out of that. And they're aesthetic moments. So one of them is technology. The way we think about technology now, 
like Apple computers, clean design, really slick interface. Like that's one way of going through the world, right? Like nobody's making these clunky steampunky Babbage machines for mass production. I mean, some people have them, but you know, like no one wants to punch cards anymore. So in the way that, you know, technology is always improving. I think agriculture had an opportunity to improve because, you know, food wasn't really that flavorful kind of coming out of the late seventies. It was era, the era of TV dinners and, you know, really fast food was on the rise and a lot of people were just taking shortcuts in the kitchen. And I think along with uh, some of the ideas from like kind of your hippie ideas, like of communes and things like that, it, it led to this back to the land movement and the back of the land movement really developed a, an ethic of eating that, that sort of came with it. And in the early days you see like, you know, just like sorghum pies and, and baked tofu, everything, and like nutritional yeast on everything. But what Whole Foods really did was marry kind of like more Epicurean uh, flavor food forward stuff with the environmental concerns. And it really just rode a, a cultural wave to success. Yeah. And so when you're writing, what is, you know, what kind of implications does that have when you're, when you're making coffee decisions about sure. speaking to that, speaking to that mindset, speaking to that tribe. So I know that the person is probably at least vaguely aware of some of the concerns that an average, like uh, that an average like foodie or an average and sustainable food advocate might have. So I know that they're starting with a basic language. So I, I don't really often think about re-explaining terms. So um, you know, people kind of at this point know what grass-fed means. So uh, being really up on the specific type of language that somebody might be looking for in a product, because like, a lot of people come to Whole Foods looking for uh, solutions to concerns they have. So one of the things we're always trying to push forward is that like we have, we've already done a lot of the thinking about these things for you. Uh, and that in addition to that, we selected the best tasting stuff. So I'm always looking to communicate basically two things. One, that the product is super safe and, and more importantly, that the product is delicious when it's something that you can eat. I mean, we have soap and stuff. You wouldn't eat that. That wouldn't be delicious. <laughs> um, so I know that you, uh, like I remember when we were out there and you took me to that amazing barbecue place, which PS mm -hmm. who thinks San Francisco has amazing barbecue, but they totally do. Right. Well, there's one spot that's okay. Uh, it, it's like compared to anything in Texas, like if you're coming from Austin, Texas, <laughs> go get a burrito someplace. <laughs> I mean, you really just, this if you're from Kansas city, don't be offended. Yeah. You, if you're from Kansas city, you should definitely try like Chipino or something really specific to the Bay area. Like, so, I mean, the company we're talking about is four, five, Oh five meats and they do a great job, but the South just has California beat on barbecue. <laughs> um, I, I I will say it was a highlight of my uh, of my Kansas City trip, uh, the barbecue out there. But um, you worked as a butcher in the butcher shop, right, in the meat store yeah, before yeah. Whole Foods. Um, do you think that that uh, gave you a leg up? Do you think it it made you bring a different mindset to the job? Absolutely. I I would consider my time spent uh, working at farmers markets and in a meat shop to be more important in a lot of ways than my rhetoric degree is because I was like face to face with people selling things, uh, really like, you know, every single customer that comes up to you gives you a chance to refine your sales pitch, you know, and over time you learn 
what words really work. I mean, to give you an example, um, very early on in working for this company, I was very proud of how different they did things. Like, you know, their their slaughter facility is on the ranch. It's humane as it, as it gets. Uh, it, you know, it's like single. It's like a Temple Grandin designed facility, and it's pretty cool, right? And some other stuff isn't so cool. And one of the things that is surprisingly not cool is some kosher facilities are not as and, and not as humane as you would want them to be. Um, and so I got in this, not even really an argument, but a lady came up and she said, well, kosher is just as good as this. And so part of my sales pitch was I showed her a video of a kosher slaughter facility. What do you mean, like was, on your phone or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a laptop at the counter. I was like, let me show you what kosher is all about. And I showed her like some some rabbi standing in front of a dude chainsawing the neck of a cow. And it's gnarly. <laughs> you know, it's not a cool thing. And that lady walked away mad and she didn't buy anything. So I realized like, okay, like we're not really selling <laughs> the fact that we don't torture animals. You know, what we're really selling is that, you know, the animals live a good life. They don't meet that end, but also let's talk about flavor. Let's talk about uh, the benefits of grass-fed beef. Let's talk about why dry, dry aging beef is awesome and why, like, it's a pretty cool thing for your uh, ranch to do salmon restoration when it can. You know, those things became more important. And just having fun with people, that was a, that's another thing I try to really bring the copy for Whole Foods Market or anything else. You know, when, when I'm selecting clients, you know, or clients are selecting me, I like to bring like a little bit of mirth and humor that that's kind of, I guess my trademark copy is I, I just like to have fun with language and, you know, I'm not against a pun or something like that to, if it helps make the sale, but it really like, I find like short, funny, transparent, uh, and meat meat's really interesting because, um, you know, there's that classic critique of the animal of animal agriculture called the sexual politics of meat. And that book is very anti the meat industry, but I think it makes a lot of really great points about why meat's so easy to sell is it communicates this virility and this fun and this kind of like macho-ness. And, you know, like all the guys that worked at the meat company, we all wore like plaid shirts and, you know, we were all CrossFit guys. We're all like pretty, you know, like in decent shape. And so when people are coming up to to order a product, you're sort of communicating this whole vibe for your product and catching that vibe and language is, is a trick, you know, and, and it takes a pretty decent copywriter to do it. And that, that's like magical when you can capture the vibe and ethic of your company. And it also works as a sales pitch. That's the best. Well, you think about, you know, whether you're in software and everybody's talking about agile or you're in the startup community, everybody's talking about, the whole lean startup movement or the business model canvas and all these kind of things. Um, one thing that I do think is interesting about what you just said is there is such a, a significant and quick feedback loop in a situation like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think about companies, you know, I think about some of the companies I helped start that didn't work out and we spent a lot of time sitting around the conference table talking ourselves into why we had such a good idea and why we should market it this way and why we should get the word out that way. Right. Where like, you know, Steve Blank, Eric Ries, the Lean Startup Guy author, his Stanford professor, Steve Blank, great author. He always talks about like, no idea, last first contact with the customer. You know, right. like, you're not going to learn. He's, he talks about getting out of the building. Like, you don't learn anything sitting at your desk. And mm -hmm. I do think like, I, I fall victim to this idea of sitting around thinking I've got a great idea. And it's not until I like call, <laughs> call a friend like you and pitch it. Till I realize, ooh, that 
you know, 25% of my good idea was actually a crappy idea. We really need to cut that out. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts for marketers about getting outside the office and, and having some contact with the customer as they think about what to write? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the old school copywriters and the old school ad guys from like your Mad Men era, your David Ogilvy's and people like that, they were all they always believed in uh, experiential learning. So you would go if you were working on Jaguar, you would go drive a Jaguar down the coast of California. Or, you know, if you were learning how to if you were writing a campaign for a grill, you would take that grill home and you would work on it or or take it out and shake it down. And I think when you when you introduce when you're when you're viewing actual people you can really pick up on like facial expressions and body language and just be very aware and you can really learn like whether or not things excite people you know if if somebody if you tell somebody something and they start cracking up you know you're never going to catch that in a survey you're never going to catch that in your you know your your survey monkey uh, what do you think about this product on a one to 10? Would you use it? You know, like it would, what you really get is like when you're talking to somebody about it and they're like, Oh yeah, that reminds me of my grandmother's recipe. And you're like, Oh, tell me about your grandmother's recipe. And then all of a sudden you might have this really awesome thing that can go out in a campaign. You know, like you have this, you have uh, a great customer's grandmother's recipe and all that stuff requires human contact. And I, I think that it's really easy to sit in your office and not, interact with people or ask, ask people or, you know, like, and definitely like go beyond your friends or go like the best thing to do is take your, your product in front of somebody who doesn't care about you and see what they think. You know, that, that to me is always the best. And then, um, you know, and if you can't get out in the street, like checking out Amazon reviews is always really helpful for similar products. Like look at one star reviews, look at five star reviews, and look at the type of language that people are using to praise or pour scorn on a product. You know, if somebody's like, oh, this thing always breaks and your product's way better and it never breaks, then that is probably a pretty good indication that a problem with the competition is that it breaks. So you could say something like never breaks in your copy, you know, and all those little lessons just come from people. And, um, you know, you're mostly like a copywriter is just one person sitting in a room. You have a limited experience. Um, so it's good to get out there. Sure. Um, so let's talk about um, content marketing today. You know, anybody who, whether they're inside a, a large bureaucracy, but they're trying to do something innovative and get the word out, or somebody who's who's building a new nonprofit or building a new company, you know, they, they pretty much get barraged with how's your content marketing strategy and are you putting out enough content and stuff like this. Sure. Um, let's talk about, to begin with, some rookie mistakes. I mean, you're overseeing junior copywriters, I know that you you observe a lot, you read a lot. What do you feel like are some of the rookie mistakes out there for people who are trying to trying to write good copy for their content? Sure. Uh, one thing is uh, if the content you're trying to communicate some sort of expertise to a discerning crowd, you can't have like just a scrub writing it. You know, it, it's very helpful to find when say you're looking for a writer. It's very helpful to find somebody who is kind of in that community, you know, for, so for me, it's food. Like if you hire me, I already come to the table with a ton of knowledge about what's, what's compelling and what's interesting, what's hot and what's not. And, uh, your content marketing person should 
be very comfortable with with the uh, the scene in which your product and your content is supposed to serve. Uh, you know, because I mean, you, uh, think about it. With uh, I don't know if you're in a fantasy baseball or anything like that, but you go read somebody's uh, recap of a team that they're watching, and it's obvious that they don't know anything about the team at all. Then you're not going to be able to take them seriously. You know, so um, conversely, if if your copywriter it, or your content creator is just producing stuff that seems very like amateur, it's going to make you seem amateur. So I think the number one is definitely if you can get somebody to write that already knows about the the community that you're working in, that's better because they're going to be able to pick up language um, that that will clue your tribe in. You know, like little little terms of expertise. Uh, I don't know if you're you're a car guy, right? So you know, I, I watch YouTube videos about weird hot rod builds all the time. And one of the things you listen to is the way people talk about their engines. They're very specific and they use weird insider terms. And those insider terms clue an audience into that you know what you're talking about. So so having a command of that language is really important. It is interesting how much you can do when you speak the language and know the acronyms, mm -hmm. right? and know what words you can leave out in a sentence because everybody who knows the subject knows it's implied, right? Sure. Um, there's a certain level of acceptance too. You know, when you're, when you're talking to somebody about a subject and they drop something into the sentence, it's like a signal that, hey, we're in the club together, Yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly that's something that's available in copy. Um, well... Um, I want to talk about your like crazy <laughs> diversity in what you read and, and the, what you consume. And you're like the most like adventurous guy in new concepts. I, I think I know every time I, every time we talk, you're telling me like, Hey, have you seen that? And of course I've, I haven't, but you're always like diving into crazy things. Like I'm on your blog, Chad Fred, Chad fredlot.com if everybody's interested we'll have links on your page sure you know you've got like you're talking about like the witch hunters manual from the dark ages and like um have you always been like this have you uh do you think you've done more of it like the more you did the more you wanted to do where do you think this like intellectual curiosity comes from well you know I, you know i was raised a little bit like boo radley from To Kill a Mockingbird, like I was raised by a shut-in. <laughs> and so I had like basically two sources of entertainment. One was a, a Encyclopedia Britannica, and the other was a television that was always tuned into the Nashville network, and which always was really not appealing to me at all. But it, it kind of, so I had these two things going on in the background of my head as a little kid, is I had this book that you would open up. And I don't know if you remember, but the Encyclopedia Britannica, but it sort of functioned a little bit like the modern internet does. You would read an article about something like, say, something I was really fascinated with were like World War II battleships. And then you would get to the end of an article and it would say something like, see also uh, General Patton. And so you're like, oh, well, what's this mean? So I've always been very interested in pulling threads and just going deeper and deeper and deeper into things. And... Um, I love making connections between totally uh, seemingly non-connected things. Like that's that's uh, a feature of my own personal writing that I, I really I really admire it in other writers. And I, I think that when you can pull two things that don't seem 
similar together. Uh, they they help illuminate uh, points that you might not normally get. So like I think you were talking about the Witch Hunters manual. I can't even remember what that was about, but I might. Um, yeah, but your your blog is like so likely to cover like anything from like Star Wars to Metallica to like something that just went viral yesterday and uh you know you're not you're not afraid to cover like aristotle and like the chewbacca lady you know one blog post apart and so i'm interested you know by the you know on this show we're trying to get as many different kinds of experts on to try and spark new ideas that maybe don't naturally go together to see if something awesome can come out of it sure um and i think i don't know i feel like there's a lot of uh, novelty, which we know humans are attracted to in remixing things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I think one, you know, a lot of my interests are, are really, I guess, for, you know, from a bio, if you were looking at my biography, they would sort of make sense, you know, like, okay, well, I was super into heavy metal when I was a little kid. So that leads into an interest in something like Dungeons and Dragons, which leads into an interest in mythology, which moves you right into the territory of philosophy. And once you're in philosophy, it's like the gates open. And you're like, okay, now what am I studying? Am I studying ancient philosophy, which was more geared to how do you live the best life all the way to modern philosophy, which seems really geared towards like, how do you completely tear apart and question everything? Um, and and I find that like rooting it into like pop culture is always very helpful for me because I think, you know, I think Carl Jung was kind of onto some stuff when he was talking about archetypes. You know, you don't see that much variation in how people think or or even what certain things mean. Like you look throughout history, you see the same stories, the same patterns coming up and over and over and again. Um, and the reason why I like all these different subjects is you know, if you're thinking about archetypes and patterns, you can recognize archetypes and patterns in all kinds of different subjects and tap into novelty. And I find the novelty is really thrilling and kind of addictive. And, you know, finding out some weird thing is is just something that gives me a thrill. Yeah, I do feel like you're like the most likely guy to be like, have made a discovery and be excited to share it, which makes the rest of us want to learn it. Um, by the way, do you know this Vimeo series by Kirby Ferguson called Everything is a Remix? Mm-mm. It's awesome. You should totally watch it. <laughs> it's kind of you. But I do feel like you're like the most, I mean, you're my only friend that's like going vegan uh, and also like really into jujitsu and wants to go build AR-15s, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you don't, you don't like- seem to like fit nicely into everybody else's boxes of, or oh, is he this kind of guy or that kind of guy? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I find like, I, I really want to find things that, uh, ultimately make my life better. Like I have like really two goals in life. One's to pay off my house and the other is to make my wife happy. You know, uh, those like my, my main goals. Uh, but I find that like, I'm able to achieve things by, uh, really kind of more going my own way or just copying things that are successful. So the vegan and jujitsu thing, I'm not the first dude in town. The whole reason why I even tried a vegan diet was because I saw this other dude who was competing in uh, IBJJF and he's like pulling down golds all the time. And uh, his, uh, is this guy, Jay and his, uh, his, his YouTube channel is a uh, plant-based athlete. And what I really liked about his take on veganism was that, you know, he's definitely concerned about animals, but he's also really concerned about recovery and I always found that when I was training really hard, 
I, I would be just totally blown out all the time. You know, like I would work out really hard in the morning. And when I got to work, I was like half, half awake. And um, this particular branch of veganism, this like high carb, low fat thing, I, I've been doing it for a little under 100 days now. And I found that it's been great. You know, I've had a lot more consistent energy levels. My, I'm not as sore from training. I'm not as blown out from training. And I'm able to eat a lot more without putting on excess weight. Um, so that's just the thing that worked, that I, I was impressed by somebody else. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm usually looking. I always want to find somebody who's a lot smarter than me or more accomplished than I am that's doing something I'm interested in. And then I'll just basically just do what that person does and things that don't fit into my life, I'll just change it, you know? So, I mean, it's always selfish, like all this knowledge, all this interest, all these like weird things, it's all, um, you know, just selfishly trying to get better. Yeah. But it seems like you do, uh, genuinely enjoy sharing too. Like there's mm -hmm. some sort oh, of, oh. uh, enjoyment you have in, in sharing the discoveries. Yeah. Well, I get like such a thrill out of reading about stuff and learning new stuff. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of really interesting, smart friends, and they're always sharing things with me. And one of the things I really love is, you know, I'm not famous at all, but I do get quite a bit of emails and posts and things like that on my social media of people just sharing stuff that they think I'll like. I mean, I can't even imagine how how awesome it must be to be somebody like Joe Rogan or, or Tim Ferriss, who has like this army of fans who are just keyed into like really cool things and they're just filtering and constantly sending awesome content. I mean, cause I'm always out there like searching for it. Um, you know, and, and you know, and then professionally I, I look out that stuff a little bit too, because it, it gives me an edge when I'm thinking about like, how am I going to get this messaging ahead of the curve? You know, like I was, I was really far out front on paleo stuff for whole foods because, um, you know, I was, going to Weston A. Price conferences and doing like, I was like one of the first people to train at one of the very first Bay Area CrossFit gyms, you know? Um, and I, I think it's because I'm, I'm constantly trying to be in front of stuff because uh, it's fun. But it also is a competitive advantage, right? Totally, totally. It, it definitely is a competitive advantage. And, um, you know, like one of the things I always think about is like, I wish I had been a little more drawn to, um, like technology as a scene because <laughs> then I would probably be able to like, you know, like my clients are like a little farm that has, you know, some eggs and they're not exactly like a $50,000 client. You know, like I, I sometimes wish I had uh, a better draw to more, more profitable subjects, but uh, you know, you, you just you like what you like and you got to go for that. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have, 20 to 30 minute episodes so we're going to break the interviews in half please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview and as always come to icollective.co for show notes and to learn more about child rescue go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with thanks for listening Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.